Untangling Veteran Benefits for Those Who Served and Their Survivors. From South Dakota Public Broadcasting, it's Tuesday, July 18th. This is In the Moment. Coming up this hour, we explore the PACT Act in South Dakota and resources for accessing benefits, even retroactively in some cases. We're going to explore the grasshopper infestation in the state and talk about efforts to outwit the swarms. Ecologist Carter Johnson is with us. We'll explore South Dakota's rivers and riparian ecosystems. Plus, is there an American child who hasn't seen the art of Garth Williams? We'll talk Stuart Little, Charlotte's Web, and, significantly, the Little House on the Prairie book series with an author who knows the history and the artist. That's coming later in the hour. We're broadcasting live today from SDPB's Kirby Family Studio in Sioux Falls. I'm Lori Walsh. You're in the moment. News is first. This season, grasshoppers are wreaking havoc on western South Dakota rangelands and hayfields. Many lifelong ranchers say they've never seen an infestation this bad. In mid-June, Laura Rohde traveled to Meade County for SDPB. She spoke with the impacted cattle producers. Take a listen. And you can see, you can see where they've been eating on these plants. See? And then in a week or so, they'll have the leaves plum stripped off the alfalfa, and it won't make very good hay anymore. It'll just be stems. So. Right now, it's, it, you know, it's blooming right now, and it's got leaves on it, but... After a week or two, they'll have the leaves stripped right off, and it'll just be stems. So, and you can just see can you you can just see them moving out there. Look at that one right there. You can just see them eating eating on the see that one right there eating on the leaves. Yep, over here, there's they're just all over doing that eating on the alfalfa. Grasshoppers. Cattle rancher Terry Hammerstrom is describing the damage hundreds of thousands of grasshoppers are inflicting on his first cutting of alfalfa. It's a perfect mid-June evening, warm but not too hot, and the air is still, except for the grasshoppers. I don't know if I've ever seen them quite this bad. We, I, we've seen them, you know, over the years, you know, similar to this, but I don't know if I've ever seen them quite this Terry and his wife Cheryl raise cattle on a ranch near Union Center. The couple rely on the alfalfa hay the grasshoppers are eating this summer to feed their cattle this winter. The Hammerstroms are not alone, explained Reed Kamak. Kamak talks to many area ranchers each day because together with his wife Amber, he is the new owner of Kamak Ranch Supply. Uh, you know, a lot of guys are saying this is as bad as we've, they've ever seen it. Definitely on everybody's mind as we see them start to take impact on crops and rangelands and things. So a lot of guys are really wanting to get hay put up in a hurry, um, treating some crop ground and things like that. So um, we have a year with some grass. We're coming off multiple years of drought. Everybody's hay yards are empty. Um, they've been struggling. You know, a lot of herd sizes are down because of it. So to watch these insects eat their forage is, is pretty painful. So why are grasshoppers so bad this year? Patrick Wagner said weather conditions are to blame. Wagner works in western South Dakota as the SDSU Extension Entomology Field Specialist. You're just seeing kind of a perfect scenario here. We had favorable years the last, what, two, three years. We've been in pretty widespread drought conditions. And that's ideal for grasshoppers um, when it's 
more cool and wet. They, there's a, a, a fungus that will uh, just naturally infect the grasshoppers and kind of keep their populations down. But when it's dry, then that has, you know, not enough of a effect and they kind of go nuts. And then also with drought, then you have uh, patches of, uh, more patches of bare ground, which are, that's the locations where they like to, to lay their eggs. And Wagner said a winter like this last one with plenty of snow cover is also ideal for grasshoppers because the snow insulates their eggs, protecting them from freeze and thaw conditions. For South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lura Rohde. To see the grasshoppers for yourself, visit sdpb.org news. We'll have photos posted of the little critters and the big impacts they have on crop fields. Now, after the break, Terry Hammerstrom, the rancher you just heard from at the beginning of this feature, will be with us on In the Moment. He'll bring us an update and more thoughts on this story. You're on listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. Well, just before the break, you heard the voice of Terry Hammerstrom. He's a cattle rancher from the Union Center area. He's with us on the phone now to continue this conversation. Terry, welcome back to uh, the show. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. All right. It's been a couple weeks since SDPB has been to your operation. What kind of damage have you seen since then? Well, they've had, they've got that, you know, the alfalfa was all stripped. That's been a couple of weeks ago already, and, and we're still haying some right now, but it's all grass hay and like mostly crested and, and western wheat grass. And yesterday I was cutting some of that, and it's still the grasshopper's head of the swath or just moves ahead of you. So. Yeah, uh, it's heartbreaking to see the video, and it's posted at sdpb.org slash news. We heard a little of just the the overwhelming sound of how many grasshoppers there are on the audio we just heard. What what did you know about this year's grasshopper numbers, and when did you know it? Like, I'm wondering, was this forecasted in any way? It, I don't think it was forecasted so much, but, boy, they showed up really early. They showed up, you know, a month or two ago, and, and they was really they was real small then, but now they're all really big grasshoppers, but they're still just really thick and in fact, you can walk out to where, right in our house yard and everything else, and they got flowers and everything else stripped. But you walk out in the, in the buildings, and there's grasshoppers crawling up the side of the buildings even. And there, a week or two ago, we had a, a really heavy rain, and we went out, like we had like four inches there a couple of weeks ago, and uh, went out to check the rain gauge, and the, the post where the gauge is on was just full of grasshoppers. I mean, they're just solid grasshoppers, so, and they're they're sure getting big, so. All right, so it has a huge impact on your operation. I want to start there, um, but it also has an uh-huh. impact on, you know, rangeland ecology from what they do to the area around you to how any mitigation efforts might impact that. But first, what do you think the immediate and even long-term impacts are going to be for, for you? Well, uh, you know, we had a really good hay crop this year, and we've got a lot of hay put up. But I hope, you know, we we have this sprayed this summer, and hopefully it, you know, will take effect and we won't have the grasshoppers next year. 
that's all I can say about it. Is I just hope we get rid of them because they're just terrible. So, is there any cost sharing for this, um, or is this your burden alone to sort of mitigate and treat? It's it's everybody's burden. You, you know, you got to pay for the spraying. So, yeah, everybody's on their everybody's on their own. So, no cost share deal on it. So. Tell me a little bit about the spraying and how you um, figure out chemical control for something that is targeted toward the grasshopper and doesn't go further than that and have impact on non-target species, for example. What do you know uh, about well, that that you can share? Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about it except that they're using this one chemical and it isn't supposed to hurt any other insects like bees and stuff like that. So, yeah. and it's dem demolin, I think they call it. Okay. And, you, and it's supposed to take effect so they hopefully next year there isn't any left, you know. Hopefully they can't reproduce like they normally do. This might be a weird question, but like how are you holding up? I mean, the the economic impact is huge, but also it just seems like it would be really difficult to day in and day out to see this quantity of pests this you know the swarms well, it, the noise the you know crunching mm -hmm. under your boots it just seems like a lot to sort of deal with as well day by day tell me about that it, it is you just like to say you just walk out in the yard just right out here in the yard and there's just solid hoppers and it's just really discouraging whenever you do anything if you, if you even mowing the lawn it's just a solid you know, ahead of you, it's just solid grasshoppers. And yeah. It's just kind of, you know, it's pretty scary, act, you know, actually. So I find it frightening just watching the video and hearing about it, um, and I'm not living in the center. But I understand Southeast South Dakota is starting to have some issues, too. What What is your advice to other people? Because it can be like by the time you see them, it's too late. But if you start seeing and, you know, and counting and you're worried about this, do you have advice for other uh, farmers, ranchers throughout the state who might be listening, anything that you've learned this season that you think might be useful to know in the future? Well, I just hope that, you know, this spraying deal, you know, if, it, if it's going to work, hopefully we'll know by next year if it's, if it's going to be a long-range deal or not. But I just recommend that, you know, like we covered a big area here this year, and hopefully it, it takes effect, and, and East River is going to probably have to do the same thing. Yeah. Um, the drought, uh, that uh, there are certain, as Laura said in her piece, there are certain, you know, weather events that happen and certain um, factors that made this season as bad as it was. Have you ever seen it this bad before? I don't, I don't think I've ever seen grasshoppers as bad, you know, and like say we've got a before this, we've had a couple really ma major droughts, you know, and everybody was kind of short on feed. But we've had enough rain now. We we got everybody got a fairly good hay crop, so yeah. it's just devastating, you know, to kind of think what's going to happen in the future. I guess. Yeah, uh, Terry Hammerstrom, I'm so sorry that uh, I know that's not what you're looking to hear, but it just my heart goes out to everybody, um, to you and the people who are going through this right now, and let us know. If there are things we can do in the future to bring some awareness, questions that you want asked, that sort of thing, just keep in touch. Thank you for today. Thank you. Welcome back to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm your host, Lori Walsh. Well, on August 10th, 2022, 
President Joe Biden signed what was called the PACT Act into law. So why does that matter today? Well, because veterans and their survivors who file a claim before August 9th of this year may have their benefits, if granted, backdated since the signing of the law. That's super important. I'm going to say it again. Veterans and survivors who file a claim before August 9th of 2023 may have your benefits, if they're granted, backdated since the signing of the law, which was August 10th, 2022. That could mean thousands of dollars. It could mean life-changing benefits for those who served and those who are suffering for that service. We're going to talk about an upcoming PACT Act benefits and VA health care drive. Veterans, their survivors, their caregivers, their advocates from across the region will gather in Sioux Falls for information. And with me in the studio now, we have Sean Bone. He is the Dakota's Regional Office Director of the Veterans Benefits Administration. Sean, welcome. Thanks for being here. Good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Let's start first with the key information about the gathering, about the the drive, the, what are we calling it? Yeah, it's a healthcare drive. About that. What do people need to know? Sure. Great question. And excited to be here today to get the word out about PACT. Um, We have that event coming up uh, here on August 8th. Uh, Coming up, we have two sessions, one from 11 to 1.30 and one from 4 to 6.30. And that will be held at the Alliance Building. Uh, Most are familiar with it. That's at 1700 West Russell Street. And at the event, we will be able to sit down with veterans individually and also provide some overarching information about PACT and this uh, historic legislation. It's been the biggest legislation in a lifetime for our veterans. And so super excited about that. Um, And that event, again, is from 11 to 1.30 and from 4 to 6.30. We'll have two sessions to try and catch those veterans um, that may be getting off of work later um, or may have a lunch break and be able to get over to the Alliance Building and get some additional information about the benefits that they so deserve to to file for. So uh, important event, excited about it. And the biggest thing with that event is getting the word out about PACT and getting veterans the information that they need. A lot of people coming in from out of town is right off the interstate um, as well, that uh, that building. So PACT Act is what? Explain that to people. What exactly sure. did it change? Yeah, PACT really um, uh, changed a lot of uh, benefits-related issues for our veterans that served in the Gulf War and also our Vietnam veterans. Um, we have 20 additional presumptive conditions. In other words, we can presume that they were exposed if they were in certain areas uh, over uh, in the Gulf War era. And also a couple of new conditions related to our Vietnam Agent Orange exposed veterans, one being hypertension, which is a significant one. A lot of veterans suffer from that condition. And so really this, this uh, legislation just opens up the doorway for benefits for thousands of veterans that were not previously entitled. And therefore opens up health care at the VA, opens up a myriad of other benefits that the VBA uh, offers to veterans who are service-connected for a condition that they uh, uh, suffered from while they were in, in service. We're going to bring my friend Jill Baker into the conversation. She's also with us. She's founder and leader of Community Action for Veterans, to so call it the CAV. She's a U.S. Army vet and military family advocate. Jill, welcome back. Thanks for being here. Hey, it's great to see you, Lori. This is so important to the work the CAV is doing. Tell me a little bit about, you know, Sean was talking about just getting the information. A lot of people just don't even know 
what's out there for them. What's your role with the CAV and what do you want to say to people who are wondering, does this apply to me? Does this apply to me as a spouse, as a, a dependent child survivor? Um, so those are a lot of questions that I would defer to Sean, but yeah. um, Community Action for Veterans, we've uh, we're a nonprofit focused on um, the wellness of veteran and military families in South Dakota. And one of our main roles is to provide a space so that we can collaborate with the VA um, on things such as this. The, the, the PACT Act is really important. You know, it has that uh, tomorrow is that last, that initial deadline to be able to backdate your benefits. I don't know if you talked about that, Sean. Okay. We'll, we'll, um, we'll dive a little deeper into that yeah, in a minute. Okay. But yeah, we, we introduced So, but it, yeah. we're just really um, focused and on, you know, bringing resources and services to our veteran and military families. We really want to do it in a way where we're following the need. Yeah. And this, um, this PACT Act um, has been, uh, our, our toxic exposure has, uh, has been around for a long time. And so this PACT Act is uh, a really important um, initiative um, that we need to make sure that as many of our veterans and their family members who qualify do apply. Yeah, and here's the key thing that I think you helped me understand more than anybody else. You don't have to go through it alone. If you're, if you're listening, you're a little intimidated, but oh my, it's a claim or I already went through this and they denied me, no, we really have to do this again. You don't have to do it alone. Find a buddy, talk to the experts, show up, reach out. Yes, and that's something that we want to do moving forward as well, um, is to provide, um, you know, just some support yeah. as veterans and, you know, and their family members are going through that benefits process um, or even applying for the VA, um, their health care benefits. Mm -hmm. It can be really, uh, really difficult. Uh, it just can depending. be intimidating. It yeah. can be. And yeah. so we really want to just be able to, you know, make that access point a comfortable place and, you um, you know, in the VA, they're they're right here in our in our area, willing, ready, and willing to work with community providers, and you know, collaborative such as Community Action for Veterans to make that happen. So, Sean, I think a key takeaway for listeners is don't don't go to this event and say I heard on them in the moment that I qualify, okay? Because this is all going to be really individual, mm -hmm. of course. But there's also a screening. Um, process for toxic exposure. Tell me a little bit, not mandatory, optional, but important. Tell me a little bit about screening for exposure or screening for what's happening in, in, in that regard. Sure. And it's important to note that the screening piece of it is kind of a distinct piece from the, the yeah. benefits piece, because the benefits piece will be looking at whether we can service connect you for the condition. Whereas the screening uh, piece is, is uh, executed by the Veterans Healthcare Administration, and they are already in the, in, in the process of screening um, veterans who are enrolled within the VA healthcare system. Every veteran who is enrolled is entitled to screening and so they will be uh, attempting to get that done with all veterans uh, that are enrolled, but also new enrollees and veterans who come in the door 
um, seeking benefits will then uh, take the next step and hopefully uh, visit our VA, VA healthcare uh, system and choose VA for their healthcare as well. And with that becomes uh, that toxic screening. You don't actually have to be enrolled to get that screening, but they're starting with the veterans that are enrolled in the VA healthcare system here in Sioux Falls. Screening is just some questions. Yeah, it's basically to determine uh, your level or at least get some insight into your level of exposure and what um, what that means for your health care, right, for your treatment purposes. Um, whereas the benefit side is a service-connected disability, which is a mo- monthly monetary benefit that you may be entitled to, um, but it also opens up the door for other uh, VA benefits that uh, we offer, uh, for example, home loan guarantee, insurance, um, education, uh, and uh, voc rehab and employment service, veteran readiness and employment services. So uh, it really does open the door to VA when you are service connected for these conditions. And, and what this does is opens up the possibility for a lot of veterans, uh, more than any in the history of VA. Yeah. All right. So what if you're not sick right now? Sure. But there it, might be an exposure. Yeah. You know, you're stationed at Camp Lejeune. I mean, we all know. Right. Yes. We've so all the, seen the commercials. If you're stationed at Camp Lejeune, you need to be talking to the VA about your benefits. Yeah. Good question. And so what the key is, is to get in the doorway so that we can really evaluate where you're at right now. Even if you don't think that you are currently suffering from a condition, um, getting enrolled and getting that initial screening done at the VA healthcare system is really important for your future treatment. But also getting uh, uh, acquainted with VBA, the benefits side of things, and learning what benefits are out there for you for your future. And you mentioned the family members and survivor, potential survivors for veterans. It is so important that veterans um, get in and get service connected for all the conditions that they're suffering from, regardless of their level of service connection. Because if a veteran passes of the condition for which they're service connected, the survivor is entitled to potentially thousands more in benefits than they would have been had the veteran not been service connected for those conditions. So it's so important that we get everyone in the door that we can, which is why we're here today. There is a long list here. Um, the the VA has added more than 20 burn pit and other toxic exposure presumptive conditions. Um, I want to go back a little bit, Sean, because I was explaining presumptive uh, service connection to some other people, and the light you can see the light bulb comes on. So even if we're saying it more than once or twice, why does that matter? Sure. So traditionally, uh, if a condition isn't presumptive, we have to find a nexus is what we call it, which is essentially a link between their service and the existing condition. With the presumptive conditions, we presume that they were exposed and therefore we don't have to establish that nexus. So if they have the condition, we can already, already presume that it was because of their service. So it's, it really takes out a huge portion of the claims process for us and makes it a lot easier for us to get to that point of service connection for a veteran. Yeah. Isn't tinnitus a presumptive? No, tinnitus is oh, not. See, that's why this this is an, it's good to bring this up that right. that is that is false. <laughs> <laughs> tinnitus is not presumptive. You that. do have to, <laughs> but many of these the list is kind of of long based yeah. on and it's not uh, you know it's not a walk in the park. You have to prove that you know I when I was in the Marine Corps, but I was never 
exposed to any toxic burn pit. So I'm, I'm not going to qualify for that particular, you know, connection. So I want to be clear about that. But um, there's a lot here. And frankly, when you go through the list, I was reading it earlier, and it's a little bit discouraging what we ask our veterans to do and what the impacts on service can be on their lives. It's discouraging is the wrong word. It's humbling. Mm -hmm. It's mm -hmm. humbling. And um, it made me grateful for my father's service in Vietnam. And, you know, he's not with us anymore. He died of multiple myeloma. Um, my uncle, who served with him, is cancer now. It's just a lot to take in a little bit, too. So, Jill, yeah, don't take it in alone. <laughs> well, so I've had a lot of uh, veterans who were stationed at Fort McClellan ask, I mean, me, if I knew anything about, you know, because there is, like, one sentence in the PACT Act about Fort McClellan, and mm -hmm. that, that impacts me because I, was, I went to basic training at Fort McClellan, and so definitely I feel like I might have some type of symptoms you know, regarding that. And so um, I don't know if, Sean, if that's something you could talk about, but sure. it, it, I know it's, it's come up at some of our stakeholder meetings as well. Um, people are quite passionate about, about that. So yeah. um, could you share anything about Yeah, so, I mean, that? great question. We, you know, Fort McClellan is, is kind of a separate, it, it is Where mentioned. Is Alabama. Okay, yeah, It Go is. It's a, it's a kind of a, a place that a lot of folks have visited that have been in the military. Um, and, and, you know, one of the... Um, you know, one of the important things about the Fort McClellan mention in the PACT Act is that um, the VA was required to do a study, which it has done since, and that study basically said that the, the folks around Fort McClellan don't have to worry about uh, exposure. Um, but one of the, one of the keys to, to take home with regard to Fort, Fort McClellan and some of these locations, if, if a veteran feels like they've been exposed to toxins, it doesn't have to be a presumptive if they have a condition. You can file for service connection on a direct basis for any condition that, that, that a veteran might suffer from as long as you feel it was because of your exposure. And the important piece about McClellan is you, you, ha you would have to identify the exposure that you have there. So you'd have to say, I was exposed to this, therefore I think I have this. And then from there, we would take it on an individual case-by-case -case basis and we'd rely on our medical experts to opine regarding whether this condition is because of that exposure. That is called service connection on a direct basis. Mm -hmm. But the presumptives, which are, uh, you know, listed in the, the PACT Act, uh, you know, 20 plus pr new presumptives for not only our Gulf War veterans, but our veterans who served in Vietnam and, and, and were exposed on the shores. Those we can, we can presume, which just makes it a little bit easier to be able to get to that point of service connection. With what Jill's talking about, we'd have to establish it on a direct basis, which is certainly possible on an individual case-by-case -case basis. Okay, so we're sitting here in the middle of July when we're having this conversation. This um, event, the PACT Act Benefits and VA Healthcare Drive, is August 8th. So you've got a little bit of planning time. It's at the Armory at the Alliance in Sioux Falls. Two sessions, one in the morning that starts at 11, one in the afternoon that starts at 4 and goes to 6.30 if that's a, a time that you need. That's where you can really ask these questions. Start an intent to file, Sean? I mean, are you going to actually be able to start something Sure. On that day, possibly? Yeah. yeah, so we'll have folks on site that will actually be 
Um, if the veteran is, is intending to, to file a claim and they know what they want to file for a yeah. claim, we can actually file the claim on site. We don't even have to worry about an intent to file. Okay. Uh, if they're not sure exactly and they want they know of one condition that they want to file but they're not sure about others, we can sh certainly go down the intent to file route, which essentially what that does with an intent to file is it kind of preserves your effective date for the, the, the claim. Um, but if, if the veteran knows what they want to file, we can just move forward with going ahead and filing a claim and establishing that effective date uh, within, or, or the date of claim uh, within the system. So, mm -hmm. um, so we can actually file the claim right on site. All right. Very quickly. 30 seconds yes, left. I also wanted to say that I had some questions about the toxic exposure screenings and whether or not those were going to be um, available during our event, and they are not. However, um, the VA hospital will have a, a scheduler okay. on hand to schedule those, those okay. toxic exposure screenings. Important correction to what we already talked about. So the scheduler is on hand, but you're not going to do that screening right Correct. at this event. Okay, Jill Baker, Sean Bone, thank you so much for being here. And uh, we'll put all this information, and I know it's a lot to take in. It'll be on our website no paywall there because it's public media, so sdpb.org slash news. Thanks for coming by. Thank you for your service, Lori. <laughs> Thanks, Jill. Thank you, Lori, and for your service. Let's take a moment now for South Dakota history. During this week in 1925, the South Dakota American Legion held its annual convention in Millbank, at that convention, members passed a resolution to propose the founding of American Legion Baseball. The league has become a summertime staple for thousands of young people around the country. Major John L. Griffith was invited to speak at the 1925 convention in Millbank. Outside of the American Legion, Griffith was the collegiate commissioner of the Western Conference, which is now the Big Ten. Instead of a traditional speech, he spoke about the role athletics can play in the development of youth. Griffith said, quote, The American Legion could well consider the advisability of assisting in the training of young Americans through our athletic games. Athletic competition teaches courage and respect for others, fostering their growth into active citizens. Now, the South Dakota Convention agreed and passed a resolution urging the Legion to create an organized summer baseball league to begin each June. That fall, the National Convention adopted the idea for the American Legion to, as they said, inaugurate and conduct baseball leagues and tournaments for local championships, and the local champions be given opportunity to compete in departmental, sectional, and regional tournaments, and that a Junior World Series Championship Baseball Series be conducted at each national convention. Today, American Legion Baseball is known as the first program in the world to provide a national baseball tournament for teenagers. A monument in Millbank recognizes the town as the birthplace of American Legion Baseball. Its plaque says, In this city, on July 17, 1925, by action of the South Dakota Department of American Legion, the nationwide organization of Legion Junior Baseball was first proposed as a program of service to the youth of America. Production assistance for This Week in South Dakota History comes from Brad Tennant, visiting professor of history at Dakota Wesleyan University. Up next, Carter Johnson takes us for an audio stroll 
along the river. You're our listener-supported SDPB Radio. You're listening to In the Moment on South Dakota Public Broadcasting. I'm Lori Walsh. We're going to start something today I'm pretty excited about. So one of the things I love most about living in South Dakota is getting outside. I'm not an athlete or a scientist. I'm not even a farmer. But like many of you, I suspect, being in nature restores me. It challenges me. And more than anywhere else, being outside here reminds me of why South Dakota is my home. So throughout the rest of this summer, we're going to talk about the ecosystems of this place that we call home. We'll talk biodiversity and conservation, history and botany and climate change. And we're going to begin with Carter Johnson because he is co-author of the book Ecology of Dakota Landscapes. He's an ecologist and professor emeritus at South Dakota State University. And he is joining us from the Janine Basinger studio on the campus of SDSU in Brookings. Carter Johnson, welcome back. Thank you for being here. Thanks for the invitation, Laurie. I just feel as lucky as lucky can be because I'm reading this chapter last night and I can just put a little mark about anything I want to know more about and then here's the author. <laughs> so I have the best job. <laughs> how, how many hours do we need now? <laughs> and we're going to just spread this out all summer. Did you hear me? <laughs> I don't know what your plans are, but yeah, we, sure. hope, we hope to have you back. All right. Yeah. So we're going to start with rivers. I'm and, around. <laughs> rivers and riparian ecosystems. And I, I think one of the things I learned from this part of your book is just it's almost impossible to to overstate human impact on our rivers and streams and the watersheds. What have we gotten wrong <laughs> that we're living with the decisions of, of the people before us and how they altered these waterways, for example? Yes, uh, some people would say that we love our rivers to death. Uh, maybe we've overused them. The main thing uh, I think uh, that I like to think about is the, the role of the river in the larger context of the watershed. So that there are things going on in the watershed that affect the river. We tend to think of the river as sort of a separate ecosystem, uh, even separate from the riparian zone nearby. But what happens uphill affects everything downhill. And that's something that we need to always keep in mind. Yeah. What happens uphill? Agriculture happens uphill. What else? Any kind of human activity, certainly. But even natural events, uh, fires, for example, on prairie is going to affect the uh, nutrient yield uh, for the river, which will affect the productivity of the river, as one example. Tell me a little bit about stream flow and how, how much that can change when we go through cycles of, you know, flooding to drought years where everything slows down and, and dries up. What, how big is the difference that, that can make in an ecosystem? Well, most natural ecosystems are adapted to that wide variation. They've been around for uh, much longer than we have, and so the organisms that live there are well adapted to surviving during drought uh, or surviving during floods by various adaptations that they have, ability to re-sprout after da- damage, for, certainly for, uh, for trees and, and other plants. 
uh, for animals. They can move to different places. They can move to different parts of the ecosystem to survive the flood or to survive the dry period. So uh, if we uh, let nature uh, work on its own, it's actually doing quite well uh, uh, dealing with these wild variations that we know existed in the past and, and continue to exist today. But you write in this chapter that we also have to keep the road, as it were, open for a time of climate change when some of those species have to move north. They have to adapt, and to do that, they have to be on the move. And if our human activity sort of blocks that movement, it can be devastating. Tell me more about that. Well, uh, some organisms are sensitive to the change in climate, so they're adapted to what we have here now, and they may have been living in that climate for thousands of years, and now it's going to change. Some of them can adapt locally by uh, handling things a little differently. Maybe they have wide tolerances, but others need to migrate north where it's cooler, and that was able to happen in the past. We've had a lot of climate changes that these organisms have had to deal with in the past, and they're still here. And so there are ways of, of uh, moving north as a way of cooling down or moving south if it were to be a reversed type of climate change. But there are barriers now to these organisms that uh, they did not experience uh, hundreds or thousands of years ago. Uh, certainly large agricultural enterprises, uh, hard to cross uh, cornfields if you don't have an adaptation for that. Uh, interstate highways, large cities and urban areas. So it's, uh, it's, it's going to be difficult for a lot of species to do that if they follow river corridors, which in our state, many of them f uh, are north to south running. Uh, they can follow the more natural patterns that we have, more natural vegetation that we have in those areas and uh, do a little better job of, of migrating and then surviving. Mm. Tell me a little bit about the beaver and the role in our rivers of the beaver, how it was uh, almost decimated and uh, kind of, you know, you have a love-hate relationship with the beaver if you are a rancher, for example. <laughs> <laughs> the significance yeah, so of, of that, key, that keystone of, species, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I've talked with ranchers in the, in the past, and that the love-hate relationship is there. Uh, they, they like the ponds for their cattle, for watering their cattle, um, but they don't like their road covered. They can't get out into their ranch because there's a, there's a new pond that's been developed. So they have to try to uh, move the beaver in different ways and to get what they want. But yeah, the beaver was a major uh, engineering force in our waterways. Uh, it's, it's, if you remember the quote in the book, uh, talks about uh, Custer trying to cross a river in the Black Hills, and there were so many beaver ponds he couldn't find any place to cross. <laughs> so the beaver was a major force, uh, it, it, and but, but the the uh, the beaver hat was popular in Europe, and uh, in order to get beaver pelts, uh, a lot of Europeans came to the United States to trap and to send those back and make a living doing it. Doing it. And so the, the beaver were exterminated from, from several large areas. And South Dakota was almost out of beavers uh, around 1900. And so uh, there were re legislation to 
uh, to protect the beaver. But today, uh, you don't see many beaver ponds. The Black Hills still has quite a, quite a large number. Uh, but uh, they're, they're coming back, I guess I would say. I don't know how many trappers are left that would be trapping beaver, as they may have in the past. But no question, as you say, it's a, a key organism to provide an aquatic habitat uh, in places where otherwise it wouldn't be present at all. Let's close with this for now before we have you on again, and that is about restoring landscapes. Why is it such a, a community-wide effort to work on restoration of a, a river or the watershed? Well, people see rivers in lots of different ways and use them in lots of different ways, and so uh, in order to get some satisfaction with a restoration project, you need to pool those people and look at, at what all the, the needs are and what can actually be done. Uh, I point to the Mortensen Ranch uh, in western South Dakota as probably one of the best conservation examples uh, of, of restoration uh, that started way back in the 1940s. And those guys, at the Mortensen Ranch guys, are still working to uh, get their ranch back to what it was like uh, a couple of hundred years ago. They, they say, uh, let the sun do the work and not all the other things that we use, especially fossil fuel. Let's put the sun to work. And uh, they've, they've converted a ranch that was totally devastated during homesteading to a beautiful ranch now that's not just better environmentally, but it's more profitable for them. Carter Johnson is co-author of the book Ecology of Dakota Landscapes, Past, Present, and Future. And we'll uh, invite you back to talk more about different landscapes that we love. Thanks for being here. I can't wait to be back. might not know the name Garth Williams, but you have probably seen his work. In fact, he may have illustrated your childhood. Garth Williams is the illustrator behind classic books such as Charlotte's Web and Stuart Little. And 70 years ago, he also illustrated an iconic reprinting of a little book series called Little House on the Prairie. Laura's, Laura Ingalls Wilder Historic Homes in DeSmit is celebrating that 70th anniversary with a series of special events this month. Historian William Anderson will present on Garth Williams's life, his art, and Anderson's personal correspondence with the illustrator. That's coming up this weekend. But first, he is also with us from SDPB's Janine Basinger Studio at South Dakota State University. William, welcome to In the Moment. Thanks for being here. And he may be, uh, we may be sitting down and making the adjustment uh, between one guest and the next. So a little more about William Anderson. He's also the author of the book you might know called The Selected Letters of Laura Ingalls Wilder. And in that book, he sort of dove deep into all the different ways she communicated with readers, with her famous editor, Ursula Nordstrom, who was one of the great children's editors of all time. Here's a little something he had from that book that uh, Laura had written when someone was asking her 
about modern times. Uh, she was feeling a little nostalgic, and she answered, I think it was easier, and we were happier, fighting all the difficulties and dangers of our pioneer life than anyone is fighting the complicated system of life that has been thrust upon us now. And uh, Laura wrote that in 1947. So our guest here is William Anderson. I'm just going to see if he can hear me yet. Not quite yet. So a little bit about what is going on at the DeSmet Event Center. William, can you hear me? Yes. There we go. Nice. Thanks for your patience as we sort of figured out that uh, quick turnover between you and Carter. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Well, it's my pleasure to talk about Garth Williams, one of my favorite illustra uh, illustrators yeah. and at art that I've known since I had the little golden books as a baby <laughs> boomer kid. The little golden books, the Francis character, Cricket in Times Square was one of my favorite. Tell me, you met him through your own work with uh, the work of Laura Ingalls Wilder and your work as a historian. Tell me a little bit about the first time that you corresponded with Garth Williams. I got to know him well through the years and as a curious kid, and history buff, I wrote Garth Williams a letter mm. when I was 10 or 12, and we started to correspond. And he was living in Mexico at that time, and by then he was aligned with E.B. White's books and Laura Ingalls Wilder's and the different authors that you mentioned. He was called the children's illustrator of the 20th century. And he wrote you back when you were 10 or 12 years old? Yes, handwritten letters, which I still have. And then many years went by, and when I started writing children's books, I finally met him at a children's literature festival that I was invited to, and he was also there. And we struck up a rapport because we had the Wilder books in common. Yeah. So he's larger than life in our imaginations. What was he like in person? He was very humble. He was the most gracious, famous children's book creator that I've ever known. When there'd be a line of 200 people, he'd flow with it, even though he was in his late 70s. And he was charming and patient when people brought grocery sacks full of his books in <laughs> and bought piles of his books. He would simply sign away and visit at the same time. What was his process like? What was his, I mean, I always think of his work, and I think of this tenderness, this imagination. I was, you know, I, who didn't have a crush on Stuart Little at, at some point? <laughs> Absolutely. What, what was his well, process you know, like? How first, did he access that? Yeah. He first established himself with Stuart Little in 1945, and that's E.B. White's famous book. Mm -hmm. And he was whimsical as an artist, created lovable talking animals. Who can f ever forget Charlotte from Charlotte's Web? Mm -hmm. And he had zilch a knowledge of the American Middle West when he was asked to illustrate the Wilder books. So he simply went on a trek to see these places, and he started his research by visiting Laura and Almanzo Wilder <laughs> on their Rocky Ridge farm in Mansfield, Missouri in 1947. Wow. 
Um, your presentation, Garth Williams, An Artful Life, is at the DeSmit Event, Event Center Saturday, July 22nd. That's at 2 on Sunday on the 23rd, also at 2. And that whole weekend is just featuring events uh, with an artist of the Plains at 10, a presentation by an author and historic photos from the long winter at 1. We'll put links up on our website to all of that. But, uh, William, what do you want to leave us with in our last uh, 30 seconds about how he changed, you know, your work as a writer? Well, uh, I spent hours with him in the car, picking him up at the airport <laughs> at Sioux Falls, taking him to Dismet, taking him to Walnut Grove, Minnesota, and back to Sioux Falls to sign books and over to Brookings to sign books. So we really got to know each other on those long car rides. And I remember Garth saying to me, I hope I can be remembered for illustrating some of the best kids' books of my time. Hmm. And I think he succeeded at that. I think he did as well. William Anderson, author of The Selected Letters of Laura Ingalls Wilder, another book about Garth Williams, and many more books. Thank you so much for being here with us. We appreciate your time. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That is our show for today. We hope that it served you. On the next In the Moment, it's one of the least transparent political activities in South Dakota. Seth Tupper knows he did the research on lobbying for the Center for Public Integrity, and he is with us for our Dakota Political Junkies conversation. Plus, how do we recapture our human ability to pay attention? We'll explore the philosophy of observation. From all of us at South Dakota Public Broadcasting, I'm Lori Walsh. Thank you for listening.